She's still struggling with pneumonia. Um, she's a little better. She's still in bed. Um, she can't breathe. She's on an inhaler. And uh, so... Yeah, well, that hasn't changed. If she breathes shallow, she doesn't cough. She breathes deep, she coughs. And uh, she's pulled a muscle in her side, and so then she tries not to cough because it'll hurt the muscle, but if she doesn't cough, then it hurts the lungs, so it's kind of a vicious cycle. So just continue to pray for her. We're glad Jill's here. Um, you know, Jill wanted to do her Joker impression, her dad says, so. Um, it didn't work. Yeah, you're still cuter than the Joker, so. Yeah, sure. Um, and one other thing, I, I uh, this Wednesday night we're going to go back to our regular routine. I don't want to say we were, so listen closely. We're going to go back because this Wednesday night they're having a forum for the people running for office in our city at City Hall, and I would like us to go there to pray and to listen what the different people have to say about our city. And so we're going to have a prayer meeting where it's going to be private prayer, um, Holy Ghost prayer, but it's at City Hall, uh, 7 o'clock um, Wednesday night. So I encourage you to go. Um, all the mayoral candidates and all the council candidates will be there, and the questions will be asked by a panel. Um, so we want to make sure we do that. But Tuesday night, if, if you want, Tuesday night is going to be the state of the city address given by Mayor Rocha. It's also his retirement farewell gathering. There's going to be food served out in the courtyard outside of City Hall. It starts at 6 o'clock. Then at 7 o'clock, he's going to give his state of the city address and will be his final farewell as our mayor. And so if you're interested in going Tuesday night, um, come support our mayor. Come hear what he has to say. Come hear him glorify Jesus because he does that every time he speaks. And uh, so Tuesday night, Wednesday night at City Hall, uh, 6 o'clock Tuesday night for the gathering outside for food. There'll be free food served out in the courtyard around the fountain. And then his speech starts at 7, I believe. So um, with that said, we are still in Ephesians. I know. So we're still there. Um, and we're still in, in chapter one is what I meant to say. Um, I thought it was great today how uh, Heather's first two songs were prayers. Um, it was really about our desire and how we want to be. And this whole part of Ephesians, uh, beginning with verse 15 all the way to verse 23, is Paul's prayer, one of two prayers. He prays again in chapter three. And by the way, he doesn't write chapters. It's one letter. So he starts with a prayer in the letter. In the middle of the letter, he prays another prayer. Um, but this prayer um, is interesting. Uh, when Paul writes this letter, you know, Ephesus, um, if Paul had to say he had a favorite city or he had a home base, it would be Ephesus. He spent more time in Ephesus than any other place, two and a half years. That's where he was a tent maker. He planted the church there. He had a great relationship with them. And so he was there from um, um, 8052, halfway through to 8055, so about two and a half years. And he writes this letter to them eight years later. So this letter is written about 8062. 
And uh, it's, it's great because he starts this part, and we've already gone through the first 14 verses. He says, therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. So Paul is keeping track of what's going on in the church of Ephesus because he hasn't been there. It's been eight years since he's been there. And the reputation the church in Ephesus has is this. They have faith in the Lord Jesus, and they have great love for all the saints. And so Paul says, having heard about your faith and having heard about your love, um, this is what I pray in response to hearing that. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And there's more to the prayer we're going to cover as we go along. So I've, I've broken the prayer down into pieces. So the first thing Paul says here is, I've heard your reputation, and I want you to know that I pray for you often. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul's also the one that says, pray without ceasing. He also says, pray always. So to pray without ceasing, that means Paul, is const- his mind is constantly on those who he has mentored and discipled and led to Christ and set them on their way. And so as he thinks about the people in the city of Ephesus, particularly the church, he, he's thinking about their faith and their love for one another. And so he prays for them for more. He says, I'm praying, I, I want you to go deep to what I hear about your faith. I love what I hear about your love, but I want you to go deeper. And here's my prayer for you. Here's my desire for you. His thing is that the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So God will give the spirit, according to Paul and according to scripture, he'll give us wisdom and revelation according to the measure that we ask. You know, Jesus is very clear in the Sermon on the Mount, asking you will receive, seeking you will find, knocking the door shall be open. Um, you know, James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach. And so what Paul is asking is not something that's impossible. It's not something that's out of the realm of possibilities for the church at Ephesus, but he wants them to know that it doesn't just happen. We don't just get wisdom and revelation, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, by simply saying, I've asked Jesus to come into my heart. See, we can't do God's part, and God won't do our part. That's the kind of the way he's set up the relationship with us. The things that God can do, and we have to seek him, we have to obey him, we have to ask. That's our part. His part is to answer that. His part to say, if you seek me, you'll find me. If you knock on the door, I'm going to open it. If you ask, I'm going to give it. But that's all predicated upon us doing our part first. So we have to seek, we have to knock, we have to ask in order to receive what God wants to give to us. That's, that's the process he set it up. So he doesn't just have this picture that he pours out and as we walk around he tries to keep it over our head to pour out on us he's he's dependent yes he is god he is sovereign he doesn't need anything but his actions in our life 
He has set up the process by which his actions are dependent upon our asking, upon our seeking, upon our knocking. So Paul's revelation of the power of prayer as well as his highest focus in prayer was for the spirit of revelation to rest upon these people that he immensely loves, that he would probably call his church family. And so here's what he says. When I pray, this is how I pray. I appeal to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what God did for Jesus in his humanity is the ideal picture of what God is committed to do for us as his children. So when Paul says, in the humanity of his son, as his son walked on the earth, God also wants to do in us. He also wants to pour in us. So I, I pray for that over you. And he says, I also pray uh, that it, the father of glory, which is, it, it's the core reality behind Paul's prayer, and that he is praying to the one who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, the Father of glory. Um, and here's the thing. When people talk about the glory of the Lord, but I don't think they fully comprehend what they're saying or they understand what it is. What, what, if I were to ask you right now, everybody take out a piece of paper and write down, what is the glory of the Lord? I, I would safely say we might get 20 different answers. Biblically, the glory that God possesses is the glory he longs to impart to you and I. He longs to impart it according to our hunger for it. In other words, there, there is a part of his glory, of his majesty, of his sovereignty that he shares with no one. But then there is a part of his glory he longs to pour into us in response to our seeking it, asking it, knocking for it. Because the glory of God, as I understand it, this is what I would write down, is, is the manifest beauty of his holiness and his greatness um, that is poured out per perfectly. When, when David says, the one thing I desire and that will I seek all the day of my life, to dwell in the house of the Lord, to inquire in his temple and, and, and to gaze upon his beauty. The beauty of the Lord is really the glory of the Lord. It is his, it is his manifest holiness, his greatness. It's the manifestation of his character, his worth, his attributes that he longs to pour into us. There is a part of God's glory that he wants to be reflected in us. It's the same part of his glory that he rested upon his son, upon the human part of his son. And we can't, we can't divide Jesus' humanity and his deity because he was fully both. Jesus was fully God. He wasn't half God, half man. And, and I think there is a tendency in the church to think that. I think people look at the half-man part of, of what they think is the half-man part, saying the things that Jesus did, um, he had to do as a man, otherwise I couldn't do it. In other words, when Jesus said, the works that I do, you will do also, but greater works than these you will do, part of the way that, that teachers have, have 
you know, whittled this down to where it's comprehensible is to say then Jesus must have done all those things as a man. But Jesus never stopped being God. That Jesus didn't say, today I'm going to walk as a man, uh, tomorrow I'm going to walk as God. He was fully God, fully man. And we cannot assume that the power that Jesus had was simply because he was a man, because many of the things Jesus did, the church is still yet to do. So I think we need to understand that when we talk about the attributes and the holiness of God, that which he poured into his son, he also wants to pour into us, is the reality that we can do the works that Jesus did. Um, but we do it not out of our humanity. We do it out of the spirit of God that's poured into us and the power of God that lives and dwells through us by the Holy Spirit, which is the same way that Jesus worked. That's why when Jesus came out of the wilderness, he quotes Isaiah. Jesus didn't come out of the wilderness and say, I'm God, therefore I am. He came out and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news. So fully God, fully man, Jesus still needed the anointing of the Holy Spirit to walk in who God called him to be. So when we talk about, when Paul says, I'm praying about the, the glory of our Father, you know, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give to you. He's talking about these manifest attributes of who God is. And so Paul continues that he's outlined the aspects of the Father's willingness to give his glory, which is spiritual blessings, which we talked about last week. Ephesians 1.3 says, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so his glory rests upon us because he chooses to do so in response to our pursuing it seeking it, and to have it be known in our life. And that's what Paul's praying over this church in Ephesus. He says, it's great that you have faith. It's great that you have a reputation of loving each other. But you need to know there's more. There's more you can walk in. There's more than you can have. And that's what I'm praying over you right now. And so, and so he did this so that we can experience, God did this in the, the glory and his fullness forever. And we read this last week. That the mystery of his will, Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and on our earth. And so he talks about us receiving blessings in heavenly places, which is us walking in the presence of the Lord, his glory shining upon us, and us therefore walking as his children, displaying his glory through the actions of our life based upon our asking him to work through us. And that's what Paul is impressing upon the heart of Ephesus. So when he does this, he does it with one general request. He says, this is my prayer. There's one general overarching thing I'm asking. And out of that general overarching asking, there's three specific things I ask God to do for you every day or as often as I pray. So the overarching thing that he says this, that the Father, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. So the overarching thing is Paul is praying that they can come to more fully experience the knowledge of God in active intimacy. In other words, we need to fully understand that everything God does in us and through us, when, when Heather started singing those two prayers this morning, they really were cries of intimacy. They really were the heart expression 
of us wanting to be in that intimate place with the Father, in this intimate closeness, so that we can be pleasing to him as we walk out the revelation of his love, his wisdom, his revelation in our life. And so this is, this is what Paul is praying, that you and I, as well as the church at Ephesus, need to ask for a greater um, measure of the spirit of wisdom and revelation. You know, Satan's most common attack is the opposite of this by releasing accusations and deceptions into our life. So when we're asking for the spirit of wisdom, it's the enemy who says, you are such a loser. You know, you're such a less than. When we're asking for revelation, he sits there and says, how could you ask God for more because you did this, this, and this, or because you're like this? Um, and, and so, and, and the Bible says that's Satan's primary job right now. Satan goes, he still has access to heaven. He goes and stands before the Father, and his job is to accuse the brethren. And so when you ask for a greater outpouring of the spirit of wisdom, not wisdom and revelation in your life, the enemy is going to say to you, you know there's no way you deserve that. You know there's no way God's going to give you that because you did this or because you're not like that or because you think this way or because you don't do this. How can you open your Bible today? When you only prayed five minutes today, how can you have the spirit of revelation when you didn't even open your Bible today? And he wants to shut you up. He wants you to stop at that moment and go, oh, you know what, that's true. Who am I to ask when I'm not doing my part? No, your part is to ask. Your part is to ask. And as you ask, as he pours more into you, there becomes a greater hunger, becomes a this is that, and that is this. It's, it's a back and forth going. So to have our eyes enlightened explains what, explains what it means to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So our minds are enabled to perceive God, and God imparts grace to our affections to love God and to feel his presence. And so this unaided mind can't receive revelation because it's, it is a living understanding from the spirit. So in other words... We can't just think it in our mind. It's something that is given to us by revelation, by the Holy Spirit pouring into our heart. And then as it pours into our heart, our mind begins to comprehend and to perceive what it is. When you, when you gave your heart to Jesus, the Bible says this, the Holy Spirit poured the love of God into your heart. But you had to come in your mind to a place of reason and understanding of what that love was in order to accept the work of the cross. To simply tell somebody God loves you is only words that go into their ears until they are to the place to where their heart is open for the Holy Spirit to pour the revelation of the love of Jesus into their heart. Their mind can't comprehend it. So it's the same thing here in the spirit of wisdom and revelation is that our mind can't receive revelation because it's something that's poured into our spirit. Revelation doesn't come to our head. It comes to our spirit. It's the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And our spirit then gives our mind understanding. Paul says this when he writes to the, to the Corinthians. Listen to how he says it. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, 
combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So that's what Paul's saying. If you, the spirit of wisdom revelation is not knowledge. It is a pouring of the Holy Spirit giving understanding to our heart, which then gives us understanding in our mind, which enables us to live and walk out our life. So the Spirit reveals God by enabling our human capacity to receive more of God. Um, we, we don't, our, our, our life is a continual, he prays this in a minute, and we'll get on it, but our, our life is a continual journey of getting a greater revelation of God every day a greater revelation of wisdom, and a greater revelation of understanding. What you know right now about Jesus and about your salvation is much more than you knew when you asked Jesus into your heart. It's probably much more than you knew two years ago because there is this continual process where the Spirit is pouring. He can't pour everything into us all at once because we don't have that capacity. He pours it into us as we ask for it, and as we ask for it and receive it, when we come to that place where we have a greater understanding, all of a sudden we're asking for more at a different level. And when we understand that, then we're asking for more at a different level. And that level is a continual climbing and climbing and climbing until the day we see him face to face. Because Paul says we look through a glass darkly now, but then when we see him face to face, we'll have full revelation and understanding. But Paul's saying this, until that day, we can pray for more each day. We can grow in greater understanding. And the truth of the matter is this, the more you grow in the understanding of God's love for you, the more you grow in understanding that he gives you the wisdom to say the things you need to say when you need to say them and do the things you need to do, the more you receive revelation and understand the word of God, the more bold and confident you become in your faith in your relationship with people who are outside of faith. The more it becomes part of your conversation, the more you have discernment. Um, I, I have a, a, a mentoring breakfast with a young man every Wednesday morning. We go to the same restaurant. And um, I have just, it's the, there's only one waitress in the restaurant. Um, her name is Nativity. Yeah, isn't that a great name? Um, she doesn't know Jesus. But as we began conversation with her, I mean, every week she knows us now, sits down. You know, she brings us, she knows I bring my own coffee, so she brings Juju his coffee. Um, but now I'm saying, okay, so Nativity, how can I pray for you this week? And um, the first time I asked her, she goes, what? Pray for me? Um, 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 she couldn't think. So it's health. But now, the more we have conversation, the more she's starting to tell me about her life. The more she's starting to tell me about the three jobs, four jobs she works, and, and all the different things she's going through. And we're going to have an opportunity as we go on, as we're praying for the love of God to be poured in this girl's heart. There's going to come a moment when we're going to be able to share Jesus with her and I believe she'll give her heart to the Lord right there in the restaurant. But that's, that's a process. In my younger days, you know, I probably would have pulled out the four spiritual laws or gave her a chick track and said, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And, uh, you know, if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to hell. Um, real loving, real wise. But that's, that's where zeal becomes wisdom. 
We're to be zealous, but we're to be zealous with wisdom. So Paul's saying it's great that you guys have faith, and it's great that you guys love each other, but I want you to have wisdom, and I want you to have revelation because I want this thing to grow, and I want it to grow in such a way that people see the glory of the Lord resting upon you. And so as he does that, there's these three specific requests. And, and so they are this, to have assurance or hope related to their life calling in God. So Paul's first prayer is that they would be confident of who God has called them to be as an individual, not as a Christian, not I'm called to be a Christian, but in my what is God's call upon my life? Everybody in this room has a different calling. Everybody in this room has a different destiny. The one thing that we have in common that we're all supposed to do, that our calling will manifest, one of the things is to make disciples, not to make converts. We're not called to go and preach on the corner unless that might be your calling, but we're, we're not called to see how many people we can get to say the sinner's prayer. We're called to make disciples, and in that process, our calling, our destiny is going to bring us into relationship with people along the way that, that we're going to be able to use that special gifting God has given to us, and it's going to be manifest in a way that glorifies him because his glory rests upon us. And that's why, and listen closely to this, that's why Jesus makes it clear, while the Bible makes it clear, that our eternal rewards are not based upon the quantity of our works. It's not based upon how many people you led to the Lord. It's based upon your faithfulness for those you encounter along the way and those whose lives you speak into with the spirit of wisdom and revelation that God has poured into you by asking. And in your whole life, you may love a lot of people because the Bible says some sow and some water, but it's the Lord who reaps the harvest. Some people are evangelists and can, you know, they can, you know, get a snowman to buy snow. Um, they just have a way of, of being able to present their God. They can't help themselves. And I know a guy that does that. He, he just can't help himself. Sometimes it's embarrassing to me. You know, I, I, I wish he would help himself. But, um, but on the other hand, I am, I am an introvert. I'm on the shy side. You know, and so it really takes me. I really have to be prayed up, and I have to ask the Holy Spirit, okay, you open the door, and, and I'll walk through, but I don't kick doors down. And so that's how I live my life. And so the first thing he prays is that, um, you know, we will understand the hope of our calling. Number two, uh, to experience the wealth of being God's inheritance. So what he desires the most of us. And the third thing is to experience God's power in our mind, our heart, and our ministry. So here's the first thing he asks. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So the first specific request relates to what we are to do. So knowing God's calling or divine assignment for our lives and how God evaluated our calling or our life's work. That's what Paul's praying. He says, look, you have a reputation of faith. You have a reputation of love. But I want you to know what you're called to, and I want you to know how that's being manifest in your lives. And so... 
God has a tailor-made mandate or assignment that's unique for each person. Everybody in this room has a unique assignment. We have unique gifts and abilities. Our personalities are different. Um, and, and God has a way of bringing different personalities together to make a team That's, or a body. You know, in my marriage, one of us is an extrovert and one of us is an introvert, and I'll just let you figure out who is what. But here's the thing. Extroverts get their batteries charged by being with people. Introverts get their batteries charged by being away from people. And so you have to learn how to go with the extrovert while you're an introvert, and the extrovert has to learn how to be with the introvert when it's time to be introverted. And so there is this process that we go through. Um, but we are uniquely gifted. Um, some people have more compassion than other people. Everybody gives, but some people just ability to give than other people. You know, everybody gives, but some people just can't help themselves with what they give and how much they give. In fact, I've had to, to counsel, recently I had to counsel a couple, not part of our church, but counsel a couple to where the wife was such a giver that she was giving away so much that they were impoverished and they couldn't buy food. Getting, taking entire paychecks and giving them away because she's a giver. And so we had to sit down and talk. So Paul prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So the revelation to give is a good revelation, but you need the wisdom of the spirit and how to operate it so that, yes, you can help other people, but not to your own demise unless God says, okay, I want you to starve to death. And then there would have to be a few signs along the way to, to confer that. Um, so, so we are to do, our calling destiny speaks of the unique assignment God's given us. And so it's, it encompasses time and eternity. Understand this. What your gift and ability is here on earth today, what God has gifted you for, is eternal. Let that sink in for a moment. Your strengths, your calling, your ability is eternal. What that means is, after you have lived this short breath we call life on earth... When we die and we are given a new body and we go before the Lord and we spend eternity with him, who you are doesn't change. Who God created you to be doesn't change. The gifts that he's given you that are manifest here on, on earth are eternal, so they will also be used in your eternal relationship with God in heaven throughout eternity, and not heaven, but a new heaven and a new earth. And... To be honest, eternity, ruling and reigning, all of that stuff boggles my mind so much, I avoid it. Because my makeup is that one that I need to understand. I need to know how something works. I need to know how I can fix it. I don't understand that. I mean... There's all kinds of, who are we going to rule and reign over? I mean, God rules and reigns everything now. How? What am I going to rule and reign over? What kind of throne am I going to have? What does that look like? When, what, and so 
I don't know. It's like the millennium. I don't know. I don't know how a new Jerusalem is a thousand miles, a thousand mile cube, a thousand miles high, a thousand miles wide, a thousand miles deep, when our atmosphere is sixty three miles. In sixty three miles, we're in outer space. The new Jerusalem is a thousand miles. Do you know something? A thousand miles squares would cover half the United States. So if it's the new Jerusalem and it's going to be where Jerusalem is, how is it going to do that without crushing everything? Those are, you know, that's how my brain works. Sorry, that's just how it is. But all that to say, who you are, the spirit of wisdom and revelation that the Holy Spirit pours into you as you develop and become the persons God made you to be is eternal. That's who you're going to be and what you're going to be for all eternity. The Bible says we get a new body. It doesn't say we get a new personality. When Jesus, when Jesus rose from the dead, he was in a transformed body. You recognize that there was something different about that body because two guys who knew him walked on a road with him for a long time and didn't understand or know who he was. They didn't recognize him. So there's something unique. Jesus is fully man for all eternity, but he had a new body after he was resurrected. And so all of this is mind-boggling stuff, and so I'm just going to leave it there. So, see, so the, the specific, this speaks of knowing God's revealed will in my life. What is my unique purpose, my unique design, design initial to walking out my heart in full love and intimacy with Christ? And, and, and that's the only way you can do it, by the way. If you don't understand who Jesus has called you to be, what he's called you to do, you will feel inadequate because you will measure yourself against other people and therefore, you'll have a difficult time in deep intimacy with Christ. If you fully embrace who God has called you to be, and you don't measure yourself against people, but you measure yourself against who God is in your life, and your relationship is based upon what Jesus has already done, not what you do, then intimacy becomes more um, expressive in your life. People have a hard time with intimacy with Jesus. Most of the time, I take them to the first place is, who do you think you are in Jesus? Who do you think God has made you to be? What do you think you're to do? And so many times, people are measuring themselves against their own expectations or against what they see somebody else doing or what they see somebody else being, and they want to live up to those expectations or that being, and they miss what God has called them to be. They miss what God has poured into their life. And so we need to make sure, this is what Paul says when he, when he writes to the Colossians, he speaks to one person, Epaphras. And he says, this Epaphras, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. So Paul not only prays for the church at Ephesus, when he writes to the church at Colossae, he's praying for this one guy, Epaphras. He says, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. He wanted Epaphras to stand perfect and complete in who God made him to be, not to measure himself against Apollos or against Paul or against anybody else, but 
Epaphras to be secure in who God made him to be. So this is one of the main emphasis of Paul's uh, prayer for the Colossians. So when we get to the book of Colossians, um, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians all have prayers written in them. And so in, in Colossians, this is what he prays. He says, we do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, that you may have a walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You can only do that if you are secure in who God has called you to be and what God has called you to be. There is nothing more frustrating. Let, let's say you're the head of the worship ministry in your church. And someone comes up to you who has the desire to sing on the team. And if you gave them a tune and a paper bag, they still couldn't carry it. They can't hear the notes. They can't. And when they get up to the mic, they think they're singing exactly what everybody else is singing. But they are so far off that uh, you're almost embarrassed for them. And, and that is what a lot of people happens in the body of Christ. People want to be something else, something other than what God called them to be. They want to, they, they want to grab hold of a gift different than the gifts God's already given them. And instead of discovering the gift God has put into their heart by the spirit of wisdom and revelation, they spend their life feeling less than because they want to be something different than what God called them to do or who God called them to be. That's why it's so, imper that's why it's so important. Be secure. Stand our identity in Christ. You know, that be secure in who God made you to be. Be confident in what he's given you the ability to do, knowing that your measure of relationship with him is based upon your faithfulness to who he's called you to be and what he's gifted you to do. And he hasn't measured you against any other person. He hasn't even measured you against himself. He simply measures you by your faithfulness to who and what he's called you to be. So don't put more pressure on yourself trying to be something God didn't call you to be. But at the same time, don't be a slackard and try to be something else and miss all the fullness that God has for you as you walk out who he's called you to be. And that's Paul's prayer here for the church at Colossus. You know, he says, <clears throat> and here's what wisdom is knowing, and this is what I've been saying when we get down to this verse, Matthew 25, 21. This is Jesus speaking. This, this is knowing who we are. When you will stand before God, and Jesus says this, and God will say, well done, good and faithful servant, you were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So never forget the very small things are evaluated by God as great things. Let me say this again. The very small things are evaluated by God as great things. If your entire life, you only lead one person to the Lord, and it does so out of relationship, out of love, and it's a lifelong relationship, do not measure yourself against Billy Graham. 
don't say God cannot be happy with me because look at how many people Billy Graham led to the Lord and I've only known of one person I've led to the Lord. Remember, some sow, some water, the Lord reaps. Just be faithful with what God puts before you. Now, you may share Jesus with hundreds of people just because you're not the one that leads them in a prayer of repentance doesn't mean you weren't faithful to what God called you to do. But we need to pray every day. Holy Spirit, pour into me the spirit of wisdom and revelation as I walk out the day that I can walk in who you made me to be and not try and be something or someone different than who I am. That's, that's what finding your identity in Christ means. Being confident in who God made you to be and walking out doing what he's called you to do. And not, again, we went through all of Galatians. It's not based upon doing. It's based upon being. But our being is expressed in our doing. So as we sit in intimacy with him, he pours into our heart something for us to do, and we do it. But our relationship with God is not based upon what we did. It's based upon being in the place where he can pour in to give us the instruction and the um, edification, the momentum to go and do what he's put in our heart to do. So that's number one. Request number two is this, to experience the glory of being God's inheritance. This is what Paul says. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. And then he says this. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? So the second specific request relates to who we are. In God, the first is what God do, what our destiny is, but but who are we? So the prayer is to realize that we are God's inheritance. Now that's that's mind-boggling. I mean, why does God need an inheritance? I mean, He already made everything. What's there for Him to inherit? But here's but by making us His inheritance, it reveals to us His passion for us. Let me say that again. When we realize that we're his inheritance, when we fully embrace that, we begin to understand it's the pathway to gaining understanding of his passion for us. His passion for us is so great that he considers us to be his inheritance. So, and, and Paul spoke, speaks both of our inheritance in God, which we talked about in Ephesians 1.14, and then here about God's inheritance in us. In Ephesians 1.14, it is that, that we have been given an inheritance in heavenly places. So we have heavenly inheritance, and then we also have an inheritance on earth, and we're God's inheritance. So he wants us to, to know the two. And so Paul's making reference here. Paul, the biblical scholar, the Old Testament scholar, is making reference here in the context of what Jews understood and what Paul understood about inheritance with relationship to Moses. It's because in Deuteronomy 32.9, the Lord says this, for the Lord's portion, the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob 
is the place of his inheritance. So God already was speaking to the children of Israel through Moses that the children of Israel were God's inheritance. Again, the prophet Malachi says this, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. I will make them my jewels. So you are God's diamond. You are God's sapphire. You are his ruby. You are his pearl of great price. You are everything. God's, that's, God wants us to understand by saying we're his inheritance, he wants us to fully appreciate how much he values us and, and the worth we have before him, not because of us, but because of Jesus in us. Because we've accepted the love of the Holy Spirit poured into our heart and come to the place of repentance and redemption, God wants us to understand how much value that has to him. So much so that he calls us his jewels, so much so that we are his inheritance. And that's why, see, a lot of our insecurity and fear, it speaks of it in lacking the revelation of our dignity. And, and, and it speaks of it in John 15 and John 17. Number one, we confess that we are Jesus's favorites and that he loves us as the Father loves him. This was Jesus's prayer. Jesus says, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. <clears throat> now, if you took, I'm telling you, if you would get up every day and meditate on that line, wait, Jesus said, as the Father loved me, so if you think about all the ways that God the Father loves Jesus, Jesus said, I loved you exactly the same way. That should just go, should just blow your mind. And then what does he pray? In John 17, his great prayer, it's a three-part prayer. He prays for himself, he prays for the disciples, he prays for us. And, and he says this in John 17, 23, that the, and he's saying this to his father, that the world may know that you, Daddy, God, Father, Abba, Abba, have loved them as you have loved me. So Jesus says, as the Father loved me, I loved you. And then he prayed that we would understand that God loves us in the same way he loves Jesus. That there is no escape of God's love. Jesus loves us, God loves us. And if we have that revelation, then we are not insecure, we're not fearful, you know, of that, that we're lacking somewhere. Because we, our full confidence is in love. You know, knowing the infinite riches, the wealth, in being the focus of God's affection is without precedence in human experience. So when we flippantly say, and, and I don't want to say it's flippant because I'm sure there is great truth and wealth in people who say that, but when we just go up to somebody and says, God loves you, there is so much depth in that statement that we can't just throw it out there and expect it to land in the way that we have revelation because we have revelation because we understand that Jesus loves us the same way the Father loves him, and Jesus asked the Father to love us the same way that he loved the Son. That's not just something you go, oh, God loves you. That takes relationship. That takes cultivation. 
That takes planting. That takes sowing. But that takes you walking in the confidence in the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you are God's inheritance, that you are that priceless to him that he considers you to be his inheritance, and that should give you confidence of who you are in him so that as you have relationship with other people, that confidence does not come from how you see yourself but how God sees you. Everything changes. When you look at yourself the way God looks at you, when you look at yourself as the priceless jewel of God's inheritance as opposed to the knucklehead who screws up every day, it changes the way you represent God. It changes the way you represent the kingdom. It changes the way you love people because you realize your capacity to love people has nothing to do with your own capacity. It has everything to do with what you've allowed God to pour into you. And the greater understanding, the wisdom and revelation you have of the Father loving the Son and the Son loving us and this triangle of love being equal on all sides, this equilateral triangle, the more confidence we have to walk in the destiny of who God has called us to be, each one of us unique, each one of us uniquely gifted, each one of us separately called. That's why we're the body of Christ. Take away your thumb. It's really hard. Your hand only needs four fingers and a thumb. But you take away your thumb, it's really hard for the hand to operate. You know, you take away, you take away the little finger. Each member of the body has a specific role. The problem is there's too many thumbs trying to be ring fingers. You are who you are because that's who God made you to be. Find your identity in that and flourish in faithfulness. Flourish in faithfulness. And here's request number three. To experience the exceeding greatness of God's power. And he says this. And what is the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe? So not only is Paul praying that we know who we are and that we know how valuable that we are to God, but to understand God in that is going to give us the power to live out that understanding. And Paul says, I want you to know that, that who you are and how God loves you empowers you. God's going to empower you to use that to the glory of his name. So it's this word power, you know, we've talked about dunamis, dynamite. It refers to God's strength and grace that we need to overcome temptation. And this power is available to all believers. And when I say temptation, you know, you say temptation and people automatically go to the thing they struggle with the most. You know, all right, my temptation is chocolate. You know, or my temptation is, you know, to use credit cards all the time. Whatever that temptation is, when we say temptation, but that's not, he's not talking specifically, he's talking generally that when we overcome, it's the same thing, the temptation, and this is what Paul's talking about, the temptation to believe you're less than God sees you. The temptation to justify your inadequacies or to justify why you're not living up to who you know God's called you to be. And this is what he says when he writes to the church of Philippi, that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being confirmed to his death. This is, Paul is, this is available to all believers, to know him and the power of his resurrection. When he says it to this, to the Colossians, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the att attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously. And I just want to make a point I've said many times. You cannot have joy without community. Joy is something that comes from relationship with people, period. Part of our, the, the fruit of the spirit in relationship with God is joy. But if you find someone who has no joy, someone who says, I don't need joy in my life, I guarantee you, ask them who their friends are and who they spend time with. 99.9% of the time, they are isolationists. They spend most of their time thinking about the friends they don't have, the things they don't have. When Paul says that we can have all, um, you know, strength with all power according to his glorious might for attaining all steadfastness and patience joyously, he's saying you have to be in community in order for this all to happen. So we're to live out our life in God. We have to be content. We must not be content with powerless Christianity. So in other words, Paul's saying, look it. Know who you are. Know, know who you are to yourself. Know who you are to God. And ask God to give you the power to walk that out. Because powerless Christianity is not an option. We contend for New Testament Christianity that experiences the power of the resurrection. And much of our insecurity and fear is related to the lacking of this revelation of our provision. This is what Jesus says in the book of Acts. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall receive power. Isn't it interesting today if you ask people, so what is the evidence of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in a person's life? And we will immediately go to the different gifts. We'll say, ah, oh, tongues, prophecy, healing, miracles. No. Jesus says the proof of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in your life is power. He didn't say you'll receive nine gifts when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. Those nine gifts are the fruit of the power of the Holy Spirit that lives and dwells within you. So you need to know this. Put the nine gifts are the result of the explosion of power. So when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you're filled with power. And power is, is manifest in many ways. Power is manifest in confidence in the face of rejection. That's power. Power is manifest in the, in the place of sickness that we have prayed for and it still isn't being healed, but we stand in the confidence that God is sovereign and all-knowing. So when Paul says this, we need to understand that when he prays for the spirit of wisdom, revelation, and knowledge of Christ Jesus, it is so that we know who we are to ourselves, we know who we are to God, and that we walk in the power of that revelation. It, it's like... 
I, I had this, this, this friend in high school, played on the football team, and he wanted to be a wide receiver desperately. He was definitely the fastest guy in school, but he couldn't catch the ball. I don't know what it was. The ball would hit his hands and fall to the ground. And he would be out there after practice, have guys throwing him balls, throwing him balls, throwing him balls, trying to catch the ball. And I mean, balls that are right here, he couldn't hold on to them. And finally, one day, the coach came and said, you know what? You're fast, you're quick, you understand. I'm going to move you from wide receiver to defensive back. Because defensive backs have to go over the ball after the ball too, but they don't have to catch it necessarily. Interception's good, but your job is to make sure the other guy doesn't catch it. The guy didn't want to be on defense because he would rather be tackled than be the tackler, which means he was afraid of being hurt. But as the coach began to praise him for the way he was able to cover guys, all of a sudden my friend kind of got this saying, well, I'm pretty good at this. By the end of his senior year, he was all CIF. He got a scholarship to go to, um, not Annapolis, Where's what's the Army? West Point. He got a scholarship to go to West Point. He played football at West Point as a defensive back. So if he had spent his entire high school career trying to be a wide receiver, and failing at it when if he listened to the counsel of somebody else and switched positions and lived out what he was made to be, his life changed. And that's how it is with us. There are too many people trying to have passes thrown to them they can't catch. But they have another gift over here that if somebody would just help them discover it, they would walk in full power and authority and confidence and they would soar in who God has called them to be. And so this is what Paul toward us who believe. He says, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul's going down of all these things Jesus has become, and he says he's done all this as the head, which is over the body, And he says, once we have that reality of everything that Jesus has overcome and it's a part of us, he says, if we understand he's the head, but we're the body and the head fills the body. And, and that's the way it works. When we itch, our brain says, tell your hand to go and scratch the itch. It's the same thing. Jesus is the head, we're the body. When there's a need in the body, the head tells the body what to do. So we are the fullness, as his body, we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. So God manifests his power in Christ in three different ways, in three different instances. 
the first manifestation of God's power in Christ was manifest in Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Okay? So um, Jesus was exalted far above all rule and levels of authority and demonic angelic human reigns. That's why he says that he is in, he's seated in heavenly places far above principality, power, might, and dominion. The second manifestation of God's power in Christ was the Father making all things subject to Jesus. So God placed all things under his feet and appointed him as the head. Verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. So Adam lost his lordship at creation when he sinned. Adam lost authority over the earth, his lordship, when he sinned. Jesus regained lordship over creation by his obedience unto death. The third manifestation is this. It's the manifestation of God's power in Christ is when the Father placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him as head over the church, which is his body. So part of this dimension of his lordship is evident now. We can claim the authority of Jesus, our head, as we resist sinful and satanic opposition against us. The church is both the body of Christ and the fullness of him who fills everything with God's presence and blessing to the church. We'll see later in Ephesians 4, he says this, He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavenly things so that he might fill all things. So we couldn't be a body filled with God's spirit until Jesus ascended into heaven to become our head. That's just what Paul's saying. So all God's power works through and for the good of the church. Jesus' sovereignty is exercised for the benefit of us. And finally, this is how I wrap it up. God did not exalt Jesus and subject all things to him and then simply say, now go ahead and fill the universe with your glory. Fill all things with yourself. No, he did. Instead, he made him one with us, the church, as he is the head of the body. And here's the essence of what God said to Jesus. Now, my son, you and those with whom you are united as head to body, go forth in the universe, fill with all that you are in your body. Let everything from the highest heaven to the lowest hell be filled with the revelation of your glorious perfections in the form of a chosen, destined, blood-bought, called, justified, holy, glorified, and infinitely, everlastingly satisfied people, your body, the church of the living God. That's who we are. We are the chosen, destined, blood-bought, called, justified, holy, glorified, infinitely, and everlastingly satisfied people. That's what Paul was praying, and that's who we are called to be. The end. So just know this. You are who you are because that's who God made you to be. That may sound elementary, but don't ever forget that. You can never be me. I can never be you. But you can always be who God made you to be. And you can do so by fully understanding who he made you to be, fully understanding the value you are to him, and fully understanding that we are the fullness of that as we live our lives each day. So, Father, seal this in our hearts.
May we find joy in each other, and may we find peace in knowing who we are in you and how to walk out our life each day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.